Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Anne Rice died of a stroke at the age of 80 on December 2nd, 2021. She achieved success in 1976 with her novel Interview with a Vampire, which spawned a series of novels titled The Vampire Chronicles and became a worldwide phenomenon. Along the way, she also wrote several other novels, including the Mayfair Witches Trilogy, Cry to Heaven, a series of books under pseudonyms, and the screenplay for Interview with a Vampire, which was turned into a successful film starring Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. By 2003, she'd written ten novels in the Vampire series and took a break, writing novels on the life of Jesus, on angels, and on werewolves. In 2014, she returned to her vampire hero, Lestat, and two years later, on December 2nd, 2016, I interviewed her for Prince Lestat and the Realms of Atlantis, second book in the new series. The interview was conducted at Books, Inc. and Opera Plaza in San Francisco and covers her entire career to that point. This latest book, brings us back to the two main characters of Interview with a Vampire, and over time, I guess the hero of your Vampire Chronicles, Lestat. Now, a year ago, Prince Lestat came out, and it had been a decade since the previous Vampire Chronicles book. At that point, what brought you back to Lestat? Ten years passed, and I had new ideas and, and I was being haunted by Lestat, thinking about him all the time, wondering how he was responding to this or that thing that I was witnessing. And I began to feel a great pressure to write about him again, to write new stories. When I left the material, I'd been in a very dark place. I'd just lost my husband of 41 years. And Stan, my husband, had been the inspiration for Lestat in many, many ways. And I associated Lestat with depression and loss and sorrow, and that all changed. I particularly wanted to bring my supernatural characters into the Internet age, the new age of digital surveillance, the new information age, uh, the computer revolution age. And things just began to click, to fire up for me with Lestat. And what I did was basically woo him to talk to me again. I had to you know, clear my head and establish some kind of connection with this character and invite him to speak. It's it's really like channeling a being who exists somewhere, who may talk to you or may not talk to you. It depends. And it took a little doing to get him to talk again. That sounds almost like the relationship within these two books between Lestat and Amel, the uh, being that resides in all vampires. That's true. That's true. The vampires are all connected to one being called Amel, a spirit that went into an ancient queen thousands of years ago and created the first mutation uh, vampire in existence. And all of them through the blood are connected, connected so that if the host of that spirit, whether it's Akasha or 
McCarey or Lestat himself, if that host is hurt, all the vampires are hurt. And this spirit, Amel, began to speak in the novel Prince Lestat. He became self-conscious again. He he became aware of himself as a as an individual, and he began to talk to the vampires and ultimately to Lestat. And that conversation, that love affair, that conflict, whatever, it goes right on into this book. In fact, it's really all about Amel. It could have been titled Amel. That comes back to what you were saying before about how Lestat was speaking to you. Was that kind of the inspiration for the relationship between the two of them, or did that just come organically within the story? Well, I think it came organically within the story. I I write in a very instinctive way. I get into my world, and I surrender all editorial control in a way. I mean, of course, there's editorial control going on just as there's subconscious. We all have a subconscious. We all have a conscious mind. But I try not to think about anything, just just to go with it as if I'm in a movie, it's happening, I'm recording what's happening. So I I didn't consciously think of that, no, you know. But in retrospect, in retrospect is a relationship. Definitely, I can definitely see it in retrospect that it's all about this. And, And all of these books are about us, for me. They're all about the human dilemma. They're all about the soul. They're all about what is the soul, you know, is there meaning to this world? What is our place in this world? How do we behave? Do we have to struggle to know whether or not we have a place, or do we just behave as if we do have a place? Well, going back to 1976, Interview with the Vampire, was Lewis's voice, did that come in a similar fashion, or was it not until the second book that Lestat began speaking and it changed? Well, Louis was me, really. And Interview with the Vampire was autobiographical, but I didn't realize it. I I just knew that I had found a way to talk about what really mattered to me through the the, uh, voice of this 18th century man, really. He was a a vampire, not only a vampire, but a vampire cliche, a cloak-wearing, magnetic individual with very pale skin and fang teeth. And when he started to talk, I could touch on all the subjects that I've been struggling to write about and just just not getting anywhere with. I didn't think much about it, but everything in that novel was sort of autobiographical. I didn't pay any attention to Lestat at all. He entered the novel as the antagonist. He was the bad guy who made Louis a vampire and then really couldn't answer Louis's questions about what it was all about, where vampires came from. And I always had a sense that Lestat would have his side of it. He would have his story to tell. But it wasn't something that I worried about in any way. After I finished the novel and it began to be read and people began to respond, then I discovered that they were quite taken with Lestat and they did want to hear his side of it. And one of my friends said to me, Casey Sonnabin, this poet that I know and love very much, Casey said, well, you've drawn Louis in black ink and you painted Lestat in vivid color. After that, you went back, you wrote Feast of All Saints, Cry to Heaven, which means it was a while before you realized, oh, I want to come back to vampires. It was eight years. During that period, had you even thought of returning to it, or was it just suddenly Lestat began speaking to you as he did, say, a couple of years ago? I had thought often of returning, but I really wasn't prepared to do it. And then eight years passed, and again, I felt this great pressure inside myself to do it. And I had to court Lestat in a way. I had to get with his character. I remember I did a lot of reading to try to loosen myself up and get exactly the right informal voice I wanted for Lestat. I really wanted his personality to come through. 
once he came through, he really was wonderful. He just didn't stop talking. And that's really when the series, The Vampire Chronicles, was born for me. It was born with that book. That really is the first book of the series. Lestat emerged as a hero for me. He really did. And Rice, what relationship did Stan, your late husband, have to the birth of that series then? Well, he was very leery of my attempt to write a second book. He was very afraid that I would fail. He said so. He didn't think I should mess with whatever I had accomplished with the interview with the vampire, but I went right ahead. And once it was done, I think he gave me his stamp of approval. Uh, was the next book a vampire book or was that Witching Hour? I'm trying to remember. I think I wrote my pornography after that. I wrote three books under the name of Anne Rokalar that were all pornography, and I wrote two books under the name Anne Rampling that were sort of soft porn. And then I decided to write Queen of the Damned, which took the story from the vampire Lestat and extended it into the present time and involves Lestat becoming a rock star. And, uh, well, that already happened in the other right. novel, but this told the full story of how it shook up the whole vampire world and woke up the ancient vampire queen. And that was my first number one New York Times bestseller. That was quite a personal revolution for me when that book hit number one. I never thought anything that eccentric and strange could ever, you know, be that successful in the mainstream. And I think the publisher was very excited, and so was I. It seems that if we look at how things take over virally now, on some level, sort of like with Game of Thrones, only you didn't have a, a TV show attached with it, as the books came out, more and more people would go back to the first and right. build up an audience so that by the time Queen of the Dam came, you had long lines, I remember, outside Dark Carnival Bookstore in Berkeley. Absolutely true. And it was quite unexpected. We had some real shocks. They were all pleasant shocks. You know, <laughs> it, it was really great. It was wonderful, actually, to get that kind of acceptance for something so uncompromisingly weird, you know. Well, it was also back then one of the first gay positive books, novels, that weren't specifically gay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. I was aware from early on that these books were perceived as gay allegory, but I never thought about it or attempted it or was conscious of it when I was doing it. But for me, people really do transcend gender. And I have no certain gender identity myself and never never have had. And I'm always shocked when somebody treats me as a woman, say, as opposed to a human being. All of that came naturally in my work, the belief that Louis and Lestat could love each other in almost a conjugal way, and that they could love Claudia, a child vampire, in an erotic way. And I never thought much about it. I was very pleased to discover these books had meaning for gay people. I had always been just completely pro-gay, probably for sensing that I have sort of a gay soul. And it turned out that your son wound up gay, too. Yes, he did. He did. And that was actually quite a surprise when at 18 he announced that he was gay. I was not prepared for it, and neither was my husband. We both thought he was straight. Anne Rice, let's talk right now about Prince Lestat and the realms of Atlantis. I understand that at a certain point you were working on a novel called Born for Atlantis. Did that come before Prince Lestat or after you finished Prince Lestat? Oh, boy. I think I was working on it before Prince Lestat, and I was trying to pull it together. I've been working on it for years, and I had a couple of conversations with my agent at that time, Rich Green, and he urged me to at least get the material into a treatment form so that he could talk to people in Hollywood about it. And I did. And that was a very helpful step 
because I took all the chapters and put them together and did write a kind of summary of the novel. And that was very helpful to me later on. But I'd never been able to make the novel work independently. I, I didn't know how to describe the Lost Kingdom of Atlantis in a modern way and from a modern perspective when I was, in fact, dealing with something that was happening 12,000 years ago. When I thought of combining Lestat with this material, when I thought of bringing him into it, when I thought, what if this is a really important missing piece in the vampire cosmology, everything fell into place. Everything worked. I was able to use everything I'd written for Born for Atlantis. I mean, I had to go back and rewrite it and put it into this new narrative. But it worked beautifully, and it gave me something deeply meaningful about Amel and about Lestat that was very much part of Lestat's story. I felt nobody was cheated in my mind there. I mean, Lestat wasn't used as a mere frame for an Atlantis novel, and Atlantis wasn't merely thrown into a Lestat novel. It was really something that worked on a very broad spectrum for me. Born for Atlantis novel, did that contain, there are characters called Brevenins? Mm, it did. It's hard to talk about this novel without spoiling it for people, but the Brevenins, they were definitely part of it, and the the Replamoids were there, you know, the beings that they sent to the planet and so forth. Was the problem that you couldn't find that one distinct voice? Was that yes. where it was? Yes. I, I did not have a distinct voice to really put the whole thing in perspective. I had Derek. I had Garrickin. I had Welf. I had these different characters. I had a lot of material about how they these characters came alive in the 20th and 21st century. But I just didn't have something. Something was lacking in bringing it all together. I was always being pulled away from the material by other projects. And this, to me, was a wonderful connection to make. When you finally made that connection between the two, what it did for me is it made me realize that as the books progress, they move from fantasy into science fiction. Yeah, they do somewhat. And I have always loved science fiction. I have always loved science fiction. Early on, I did a signing at a sci-fi bookstore in Berkeley. And I don't remember if it was called Dark Carnival at that point. This was back in 1977. And I remember the sci-fi readers took the book absolutely seriously. They got the philosophical dimension. They made the most sophisticated and appreciative statements. And I was really not totally surprised by this because I'd grown up in a household with an older sister who read Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein, and other great science fiction authors. She was always bringing those books home. That was Alice, my oldest sister. And she went on to become a novelist, Alice Bouchard. And she published about six novels before she died. Science fiction, as I understood it, was poetic and allegorical and spiritual. I read a lot of it, too, growing up. I read a lot of short stories. I would read the anthologies of the best sci-fi stories of the year. It was very inspiring to me. One thing that it does by moving it into that realm, when you're talking about magic, you almost never need to explain anything. There are spirits, there are ghosts. But when you move it into the world of science fiction, mm -hmm. and we can take an example, which doesn't give anything away, which is that there are ghosts in both uh, Prince Lestat and this book. Okay, but when there are ghosts and it's a fantasy, we go, okay, they're ghosts. But when it's a ghost in a science fiction book, 
we need to have an explanation, I think. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. But I had always been fascinated with a biological explanation for supernatural phenomenon. I mean, back in the days when I first wrote this, I made it very clear that my vampires occupy space and have weight and are subject to biological rules. They have what I call preternatural gifts, but they are not really magical. They are not supernatural. They, they don't dematerialize, for example, and pass like smoke through keyholes. They don't scream at the sight of a crucifix or, you know, and, and there are biological reasons why the heat of the sun is lethal to them. So I've always loved that. And maybe that comes from that background of growing up reading science fiction, that there always has to be some science to this. In The Witching Hour, I talked about the fact that Lasher, the ghost, the spirit that that haunted the family, he was made up of cells. Rowan, the chief witch, says this is a character that has a scientific reality to it. We just can't see his cells. They're nanoparticles. We can't see them under the microscope, but they definitely are cells. And someday we will scientifically understand ghosts and spirits. So that's been a theme with me all along. And I really loved letting it go in this new novel. And that's why you were able to almost pull that switch on Memnock the devil, where he's a devil, but hey, not in this world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Memnock, it's interesting. You know, I read a lot of literature about the astral plane and about out-of-body travel. Robert Monroe is one of my favorite authors, Journeys Out of Body. And he talked about there being belief systems on the astral plane where souls are trapped, that they die and these souls are cut loose by the biological body and they ascend, but they become trapped in a heaven or a hell of their own making on the astral plane. And I thought that was a very elegant way to describe the hell of Memnock and what he had offered to Lestat. I found it kind of interesting that Lestat read Robert Monroe. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he does. Lestat reads everything I read. Let's go back to Born for Atlantis. Now, you're going to create this world, right? And you're going to create elements. As you said, with Lestat, it's a voice, and wham, there it is. But when you're creating a world, that's a little bit different, especially when you don't have a voice. How did you go about doing it? I use the old Gothic device of the tale within the tale. Somebody tells the story. Yeah. Somebody who was there tells the story of just what it was like and what happened. So it's the same process of just coming through with it. Yes. Yes. And as it comes through, you go, oh, Laura Castria, I see. Yeah, exactly. This is what I had lacked in, in Born for Atlantis. I didn't have anyone in the present to whom the tale was being told. And that was the piece that was missing. I simply hadn't figured the way. And then, of course, I thought, what if this is all intimately connected with Lestat? I mean, I'd already been exploring the idea in the vampire novels that the spirits, including Amel, existed somewhere and that they were beings with a history and they were beings that manifest and they want to break into our biological world. They want desperately to do it. And it all worked out just great for me. I'll ask you a few other questions. My favorite Anne Rice book for a long time was Cry to Heaven about Castrati, and I still think it's the best novel I've ever read about those people in that era. Thank you. What prompted you to go and look at the Castrati Sopranos of that era? I stumbled across a description of them in a book. I was just doing general research about the 18th century. I was without a novel at that time. I had finished Feast of All Saints. I wanted to write something new, and I I stumbled on a paragraph about them, and I thought, this is incredible. Think of what agony these 
beings must have experienced. I mean, they became as popular as international rock stars today, and yet they were castrated to preserve these magnificent soprano voices. They weren't legally even allowed to marry. I really have to get into this. I want to write the story of a young man who goes through this, pays this price, and yet becomes world famous in how he deals with this. This incredible wound, this blow. I understand that there's only one recording of a castrato. Is that yeah. correct? Alessandro Moreschi, I believe, is his name, and he worked in the Vatican Chapel at the beginning of the 20th century. The Vatican had had castrati in their choir for, for centuries, and it was the Vatican, of course, that, in a sense, gave birth to the castrato because they they would not allow women on the stage in the parts of Italy where they had temporal power. The church wouldn't permit it. So opera had to be performed with men. And theater was pretty much that way in England, too, for a very long time. All the actresses were boys who did Shakespeare's plays. And it was the same thing there. That one guy, Moreschi, was recorded by RCA Victor at the very beginning of the industry of recording. And I have listened to that recording. And, of course, he was not considered a great voice, but it does give you some idea of how they sounded. It was a kind of screeching. I, I think that's what you may or someone may have said about it, that it, it was a little bit odd for us to hear now. We've been told that their voices had a sort of harsh edge to them, a sharper edge. I'm not sure it was screeching exactly, uh, just something harsher than a female soprano. One scholar I read said that the older female sopranos give us some idea of the power that Castrati had because they actually had huge lungs. I mean, they were male sopranos, for one thing, and because they were castrated so young, their bones did not heal up and close off so early. So they actually developed huge lungs and huge rib cages, and they had great power. But I think we get some idea of what they sounded like if we listen to a boys' choir. If you listen to the music of Libera or some of the boys' choirs, you hear that slight harsh edge to it. It's a little different. Also, there's no vibrato in their voice, I think. I guess you're right. Probably not. Yeah. yeah. Anne Rice, along the way, you also wrote The Mummy, which I remember came out in a trade paperback, which was very unusual. What's the story behind that? I wrote it as an entertainment. I was writing it for television, a television movie, and then that didn't work out, but I wanted to go on with the novel, and I meant it as a sort of rollicking, romping entertainment, and I didn't see it quite like my hardcover books. So I wanted to do it with my paperback house, which was Ballantine, and they were willing, and we did it as a paperback original, and it's proved to be a very popular book. It's a lighter book. It's more fun. It doesn't have the same tight cosmology. And of course, once again, the characters are pondering the meaning of life, as always happens with me, but there's a lot of romance in it. It was really a supernatural romance thriller before the genre had a name. Well, what I remember about it is that Toward the end of The Mummy, I remember it just suddenly went off the rails, rails in a good way, in uh, a good way. Yeah. You know, if that makes sense. It's just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I had people running in and out of hotels and opera houses in Cairo and chasing each other and, and, and missing each other narrowly. And, and, you know, I loved writing that stuff. It was really fun. I was trying to evoke the spirit of H. Ryder Haggard, really, with the she novels. And The Witching Hour, which turned into a trilogy and is a ghost story, 
At the time, were you thinking that it might connect up with Vampire Chronicles? No, I really wasn't. And frankly, if I regret anything I've ever done, I regret ever connecting it with the vampires. I wrote three hybrid novels there where the characters come together and I wish I hadn't. I don't think any lasting harm was done. And I put a lot of myself into Blackwood Farm and Blood Canticle. But I wish I'd never connected them. The two series really had a different texture. And I was never happy with the connection. The Witching Hour was very feminist work, for one. It was. It was in its own way. It, it truly was. I loved writing. It was also intimately connected to New Orleans with me. It was right after my return to my hometown that I wrote The Witching Hour. And all of my love for New Orleans, coming home after 30 years in California, it was, it was all in that book. Uh, and I'd done an enormous amount of research for Feast of All Saints and for Interview with the Vampire in Louisiana history and New Orleans history. I poured it all into that work. I see it as a trilogy. I think it's quite a, a complete, well-realized trilogy, actually. Why do you regret it? Why do you regret making that connection? Just because of the different vibe? Yeah, the different vibe. And I didn't really want to go on with the hybrid characters. I wanted to go back to Lestat. And I don't rule out going back someday to Rowan and the Mayfairs, but I want to keep them separate. They have separate destinies in my mind. The smaller books, of which there were, what, six or seven, the individual histories of the various vampires, uh, was that intended as a series of smaller books? We did at one time want to do Tales of the Vampires as, a, as smaller books, but I'm not sure that was a, a good publishing decision. It was my fault. You know, I wanted to do two books a year, and that was a way to accommodate doing two books a year, but it turned out that I really didn't have the energy to actually produce two full-dress novels a year, at least not every year. And Pandora, the one one of the books we did in that form, really could have would have been fine simply put forward as a vampire chronicle. There was nothing about it that distinguished itself from the other books. The other one, Vittorio, really was sort of a spin-off story. It had the same cosmology, but it was a completely different character. At that point, were you beginning to sort of get tired of vampires and thinking, I want to do something else? That would happen periodically. That yeah. would that happened from the beginning. I always wanted to do a great variety of things. And that's where the werewolf novel came in. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I did two werewolf novels that I think are quite complete on their own. Really loved doing that. Again, doing my own cos cosmology of werewolves, calling them morph and kinder, and giving them a, a mythic history. And really loved exploring those characters, Felix and Reuben, and the world in which they live. And I would like to return to them at some point. The religious element in your books, I mean, spirituality has always played a role. You were born Roman Catholic, mm -hmm. and there's a Catholic sense throughout the whole books. Definitely. Particularly vampire ritual. I mean, mm -hmm. were you caught up in ritual growing up? Oh, very much. I, I was brought up in the old Latin church before Vatican II in a very Catholic city in the South, a church very influenced by the Spanish and Italian, as well as Irish and German Catholics. And we went to magnificent churches every morning for Mass and communion. And I went to Catholic schools and we had all of our beautiful rituals. I mean, um, I didn't remember my baptism, of course, but I certainly remember my first communion, walking up the aisle with all those little girls and boys in, in white, and we wore little wreaths around our hair, and it was quite a, a, quite a, uh, a landmark 
ritual in, for a Catholic child. Confirmation was the same way. We wore white dresses again. We had elaborate veils. We were like little bridelets walking up the aisle. Uh, that was beautiful. And all the rituals pertaining to Lent, like the Stations of the Cross, going to church on Good Friday, kissing the cross, all of that was part of my childhood. And it was great to be living in such an intense Catholic city as New Orleans. Why? Oh, we got a real European education as well as an American education. In the lives of the saints, in the stories of the saints and our rituals, we were always in contact with a great European heritage. And just going into church, we saw beautiful Baroque murals and statues and stained glass windows that came from Europe that were a continuation of the Baroque and Rococo artistic movements. We just got a great cultural package. It feels as if sometimes that even though you're writing about the present, that the vampires, they dress and they act sort of 17th, 18th century for Always. that reason. Always. They were born for me in that age, and I would love to go around dressing that way myself. It just isn't very practical. <laughs> Another element, of course, is politics, and mm -hmm. we're talking right now a few weeks after the election. The last time we spoke, you talked about social justice in your novels and mm -hmm. how it came through. I'd like you to talk a little bit about how conscious that is, and if it is conscious, where it pops up. Well, I grew up a social justice Catholic and Democrat. The Democratic Party was our party because we believed it was the party of Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, where the Lord says, you know, feed the hungry, visit the sick, bury the dead, visit those in prison, you know, give a drink of water to the least of these, and so forth. And that's always been something that's very important to me. I recently learned um, a Jewish expression, a Hebrew expression, that I think ties in with that. It's I don't know how to pronounce it, but I think it's tikkum olam, and it basically means repair the world. And we were taught that that was something we had to do growing up, repair the world, help, help with the world. And that spirit is in all my novels, and it's influenced me my entire life. All of my characters are in some way concerned with how to live in this world, what's being asked of them, and what they should do. Very much so in um, Prince Lestat and the Realms of Atlantis. That takes almost a priority. It does. And I was astonished. You know, reviews are just beginning to come in. But the early reviews that I got on Amazon and from the blogs really uh, responded to this in this new novel. They talk about the utopia of Atlantis that I present in the book and how I try to present this as a world in which social justice is very important and the needs of people are very important and democratic principles and sanctity of life, all this is, is vital. I'm surprised, you know, reviews always do shock you and they are random and sometimes there's no consensus, but other times you get some powerful insights. And that's what's happening on this book so far. I'm very, very grateful that people are taking it that seriously. The last date there listed is July 2016. The book was written during the campaign. It was. So on some level, that might have influenced you, even if not consciously. Well, yeah, it, there's no question that it did. I was definitely knocking off every night and going in and watching the campaign in vivid color. It was very frightening, very exciting, very interesting. But again, these have always been themes I'm interested in. No question. This campaign certainly did hit on all of them. And I think we saw, we, we had, you know, when we look back on this, we'll realize how incredibly 
exciting it was to see things that had simply never happened before in American politics. And no matter how critical we are of that, no matter how pessimistic we are about that, that in itself was exciting. New things are happening, new challenges. We are confronted with new challenges, challenges we simply have never had before. And it seems to me that the impact of the internet is paramount. We saw our first real internet campaign and right. election where misinformation was rampant and all of the faults of the internet were brought over into the world of the election. There's a throwaway line toward the end of uh, Prince Lestat and the Realms of Atlantis, maybe even one of the last pages where Lestat makes a comment about the community of vampires with continued surveillance, electronic surveillance, and how are we going to stay together? And I found it interesting because it suddenly hits you that whatever you're writing about, things are changing really fast, not necessarily in a good way, no. but we have to protect ourselves. Well, that's absolutely true. And, you know, for me, these creatures are real. They really are vampires, witches, ghosts. And think what this is like for them to be living in a world where they can't board a plane without going through an x-ray machine and where they're being photographed everywhere that they go. And picture IDs are demanded of them. And also think of the incredible opportunities that they are seizing to get in touch with people they lost contact with 4,000 years ago. They can now go on the internet like Benji Mahmood, the little vampire in the novel, start an internet radio show and reach out to the elders and say, where are you? You know, come forward, help us. All of this to me was very exciting. It was my way back into the series. It was my way of rebooting the series. Well, you're lucky that they can see themselves in mirrors because that could have been a problem. It could have been a real problem, but I eliminated that early on. Thank goodness. <laughs> Well, when you when you created it, you knew you were going to eliminate some of that stuff. Oh, yeah. I wanted, as I said, they were biological yeah. entities to me. And even when I deal with ghosts, it's interesting to me that they are also biological entities. You try to explain and discuss how they come to be very specifically in, mm -hmm. in Prince Lestat and the realms of Atlantis, mm -hmm. though they're also in the earlier ones. I want to ask you about the films and the musical, but one more question, which came up as I was reading this book, and it came up before a couple of times, which is that Lestat was originally a villain and became a hero. Amal was originally a villain and became a hero. When Amal first appeared as a spirit, was there any indication that you would turn him into a positive character? He definitely evolved over time, and I did not foresee his becoming conscious and speaking. But once that happened, it was a very, very exciting door that opened for me. And I think from the beginning of that door opening, I certainly saw him as having his own agony, his own pain, his own story. Again, that's an ongoing theme with me, that if you let the villain talk, if you let the the demon speak to you, I don't like to use the word demon because they're not really demons, but I mean, if you let the bad guy talk, the bad guy's got his own side of things. Does that kind of bode for the future for the character of Roche? who's a villain? Well, I think I've explored Rosh's good side too, but the problem with Rosh is he's a very selfish and indifferent and somewhat shallow being. He doesn't explore the deep side of himself. You know, he largely sees life in terms of creature comforts, drinking blood and going to the opera. One thing I've noticed in this one is it definitely opens the door to another book because there are missing pieces that we don't learn about in this one. Oh, that's true. I, I think Lestat's going to confront several challenges in the future. The ongoing existence of the survivors of Atlantis is number one. 
they are another species of immortal, and they're now sharing the planet with the vampires and with other people. And second of all, they're obviously going to be members of the undead that don't accept Lestat as the prince. And once you've established a a magnificent chateau as your court, and once you've gathered around you a power structure, they're going to be people want to take it away from you. Well, two questions that I would have. One would be what happened to the original makers, the Brevenins, and the other question, of course, is what happened to Amel between Atlantis and when he went into the body of the queen? Well, sure. All those questions are out there to be answered. And I'm very excited about that. You know, you know, often in the earlier Vampire Chronicles, I closed doors at the end of the books. Over and over again, I closed doors. Things fell apart for the characters. They wandered off, alienated, with very little hope. Now I do the opposite. I open a lot of doors at the end of the books. I have more questions. And I hope this means that at the age of 75, I'm more aware of what I don't know than ever before and more curious about what I don't know than ever before. Anne Rice, do you get a lot of fan fiction set in your world? I don't read it. I can't read other people's fiction dealing with my characters. It would be very disturbing to me and blocking me. I, I simply don't look at it. But it's there. It's Apparently it is, yeah. There was a graphic novel, Claudia's story. Mm -hmm. what's, what's the story behind that? Uh, that publisher wanted to do that adaptation of the work. They wanted to do a graphic novel, and they asked if they could adapt Interview with the Vampire from Claudia's point of view. And I agreed with it as long as it was marketed for what it was, an adaptation. You know, like a musical or, right. or a movie. It's an adaptation. Adaptations. Interview with the Vampire, the film, I know at first you were very upset about Tom Cruise, mm -hmm. and then you saw it. What is your feeling today? A friend of mine saw it recently and had her own comments about it, but that's just another person. What do you think of the film? I think that David Geffen, the producer, and Neil Jordan, the director, made something that will survive as a classic. I think I was very, very lucky, very lucky to have people of that caliber wanting to do what they did. And I made many immature mistakes back then, you know, complaining about Tom Cruise, getting upset. But the characters meant an enormous amount to me. And I think Tom in particular understood that. And he was very kind and generous in his comments about that, that he came to see what this meant to me. I think he did a magnificent job of playing Lestat. I still think it was not what would you call it? It was not intuitive casting. It was right. an unusual casting choice, but he certainly did a fine professional job. It seems to me that when I think about it, I mean, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, but the character and the actor who stood out in my mind was always Kirsten Dunst. Oh, Kirsten Dunst did a fabulous job. She really did. And she did get a Golden Globe for what she achieved. And I frankly wish they had all gotten more recognition for what they achieved. I think the buzz around the film and the popularity perhaps worked against their getting more recognition. But I think it was just a magnificent achievement. And I mean, and, and not, you know, just because it's based on my work. I mean, I think just as a horror movie fan, it is a great film. It's The Red Shoes of horror movies. I mean, that's how I see it. It's like Michael Powell's The Red Shoes. And Neil Jordan is a genius. I mean, I don't know if you saw it, but he recently did The Borgias, this unbelievable right, Showtime yeah, sure. series. And there was Neil bringing all of that brilliance of his to The Borgias and using those characters really as the way Shakespeare used historical characters. You know, I, I'm just to this day humbled by this. And David Geffen was really the man behind it all. He was the David O'Selznick of the whole thing. Okay, so you had been on tenterhooks about this thing. You walked into a preview 
And what was your reaction as you as it unfolded? Do you remember? Of the movie interview yeah. with the, oh, I was emotional. I had to be carried out. I had to really? go home. Yeah, I thought that when I saw it on the big screen, I'd, I'd seen a, a tape of it. But when I saw it on the big screen, it was absolutely overwhelmed. It took, it was so real. It was so fully realized. All of them did such a great job that it took me right back to the roots of the book, right back to the room in Berkeley where I was writing the book and the memories and the personal losses and suffering that had fueled the writing of the book. And I had to go home and leave all my relatives and family in the lobby of the hotel. And poor Christopher, who was just a, a little boy at the time, had to stand there and talk to people and make excuses for his mother being carried, you know, out of the show. And I, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I mean, to think that people came together and did something like that based on your work. And then there was Exit to Eden, which you, when you originally, when we talked about this, you had said that you expected a serious film, but they turned it into a comedy. Yeah, they did. Basically, I love Gary Marshall. I think he's a great guy. And Alex Rose, the producer, I love them all. They were wonderful. But they made fun of the S&M community. And it really was a serious S&M romance. It had a lot of humor in it, but it was meant to... It was positive about the gay S&M community, and unfortunately, they just used it for humor, and it didn't work, and it didn't work, and it wasn't that popular a movie, and, and it, it, it was just a, a misfire. And Queen of the Damned, I mean, I know that the star died right afterwards. Mm -hmm, there were also issues involving, I guess, uh, this guy Stuart Townsend, who was a uh, one of the actors mm -hmm. in it. I mean, how did that go bad, remember? Well, basically, Warner Brothers had the rights, and they wanted to launch a franchise from the material, and they were not terribly interested in my take on it or the readers. They wanted to do something all their own with it. I begged them to let me be involved. I, I begged them to let me write a script for the Vampire Lestat, and I said I would do it for union scale and a deferred payment. You know, just give me a shot at it. They basically said no. They said, you're too big for us, Anne. You know, we want someone to do this who will listen to what we want. And they didn't want to do the Vampire Lestat. They wanted to do the Queen of the Damned novel. And they basically made something that was not based on the work. And it did not succeed. They did not find a large audience for what they did. And I don't regard that as a movie based on my novels. You know, they made major changes with regard to the cosmology and the right. biography of the characters. And I don't think that the people in that movie were the characters I created. For those of us on the outside, it was like, what the hell are we watching? Yeah, exactly. Here? I mean, I, I felt it was it was not their intention, but I felt that they kind of swindled the readers. They used the names, and they used enough plot elements for this thing to be legally based on the Chronicles, but it was not what the readers wanted. Now, some people did enjoy that movie, and they have enjoyed it since. And, you know, they do come on my... Facebook page and they talk about it, but most people are dissatisfied with it, and sadly, they blame me. What is the story behind a Vampire Chronicles series of films or Showtime series? Where is that at this point? Well, years ago, Jerry Offsay at Showtime did want to make a series based on these vampires. He, I thought it was a great idea, but unfortunately, Jerry went on to do other things, and Showtime changed, and years passed, and nobody picked up the idea. But now, today, all the rights to the Vampire Chronicles have reverted to me, free and clear, and my son and I are going to be doing a TV series, just that, based on the Vampire Lestat, beginning with that book, beginning with Lestat's birth as a vampire and a hero, and we hope to write screenplays, treatments, 
what they call on TV, the Bible of the series, for an open-ended t- series that moves right through the stories. I, I think we want to use book one, The Vampire Stop, for maybe two seasons, and then go into Interview with the Vampire and Queen of the Damned and Tale of the Body Thief, Memnock the Devil, and just move right on into Prince Lestat and the realms of Atlantis. And we're very excited about the idea. Very excited. Has anybody picked up on it yet? Oh, we've gotten tremendous interest. In fact, I'm quite amazed. I posted on Facebook about it, and I expected people to say, you know, that's nice, honey. And we got 2.8 million hits on that post, and blogs all over picked it up, Dread Central and Deadline and Entertainment Weekly. Our agents were deluged with phone calls and letters, and we've been very pleased with the support and the interest, but we want to keep our heads, and we want to develop our pilot script and our outline, detailed outline for the first series before we meet with anybody. I mean, this is a collaborative art form. And before this goes forward with any network or entity, there will be compromises. But we want to get it completely established how we see this. And we want to remain at the heart of of the creative process. Christopher's been working in television already, hasn't he, or in film? Both. I mean, he wrote a script for Tale of the Body Thief that Universal bought. Universal had the option for a year and a half on all the Vampire Chronicles, and they were quite taken with the script. His script brought them to the table to negotiate. They have let that option lapse, and that's why all the material has come back to me. So yes, he's had that experience, and he's a natural scriptwriter. He's written other scripts, you know, it comes very naturally to him to work in that medium, more so than me. I, I did write the script for the for the movie, and mm-hmm. I did get sole credit for that, and that was a very rewarding experience. Uh, but Christopher, it's much more natural for him to do this. The Lestat musical, which I saw in San Francisco, and it went to New York and didn't do very well, Mm-mm. but music by um, Bernie Taupin and Elton John, what do you think went wrong? I just don't know. You know, I, I really love all those people very much. I I loved Elton Bernie and Rob Roth, the director. And I don't know if it's fair to be critical in hindsight. It's an awfully rough world. The musical has to succeed right away in one city, in one theater, or it's not going to survive. It's also a highly competitive world and a world where a lot of people want to see you fail and are quite witty about that, you know. And persistent. I guess as I look back on it, maybe it wasn't gay enough. Uh, maybe, you know, the theme of the great love between Louis and Lestat was not developed enough. I honestly don't know. I really feel uncomfortable trying to second guess what happened. Right. I respect what they did. And I think that, you know, they tried very much to, to make something work. I frankly enjoyed the performance in San Francisco. Not all of it, but I enjoyed a great deal of it. One of the issues involved with any play is that when you see something that's not working, you know, never good or bad, just working or not working mm-hmm. is the way you have to put it. You try to come up with things to, quote, fix it and mm-hmm. make it work. And that's always a challenge, mm-hmm. which sometimes will succeed and sometimes just won't. Right. Well, that's true. And it's also a collaborative art form where people at the outset who have the strongest voice may be marginalized and moved aside for someone else. You know, I can tell you what people told me about the musical. As I said, I'm not comfortable saying why it didn't work, but I can tell you what they told me. One friend uh, who's done a lot of critical writing in theater, he said that it lacked a great love song for Louis and Lestat, and that that was one real flaw, that it lacked that love song. And he also said that it wasn't gay enough. They weren't upfront enough about the Mm. gay aspect. And, of course, 
Lestat and Louis being gay is only one aspect of the whole mix. I mean, Lestat's really a polymorphous character sexually. He's not just gay. I mean, he's he's also straight. I mean, he loves yeah. men and women. Whatever. Maybe they were a little too inhibited with that aspect of it. I don't know. Maybe it should have been more sensual. But I, I think that the friend was right about the lack of a love song there. I just don't honestly know why it didn't work. They worked so hard. They tried so hard. And it was really a dream for Rob Roth to do this and for Elton John and Bertie Topin. I wish they had gotten a better shake. In trying to fix it for New York, I'm not sure they made it any better. My thought on it is a simple one. I just felt it wasn't enough fun. Well, I think that's a very important factor. That's very important. I think I know what you're talking about. You know, in some ways, that was also true of the movie interview with the vampire. It was a very dark, gritty, muddy movie. And I think maybe it lacked some spectacle and some fun that could have been in there. On the other hand, the movie, because it had over-the-top performances by Cruz and Dunst, which made up a little bit for Brad Pitt kind of underperforming, because of that. And because mm. Cruz deliberately did that, mm. he brought up the fun. And that yeah. was not in that was not in the musical. I, I think you're right. And sometimes very small things can make a difference. I mean, one of the things my readers love very, very much is the beauty of the characters and the costumes of the characters mm. and the clothes. And Myla Stott is a dandy. You know, he raids Ralph Lauren at night in New York and leaves money on the counter for the clothes he takes. And clothes are very much part of it in, in spectacular rooms and environments. And the musical did not play up that element. It did not play up the beauty of the characters and the clothing and so forth. It was more of a bare stage approach to things. And maybe that didn't work. But again, I feel very hesitant because I love those people so much. And I think it's unfair of me to second guess them now. Anne Rice, when you look back on all of the novels you've written, Interview with the Vampire, for obvious reasons, stands out. But is there anywhere you kind of go, you know, I love that book and it's kind of underappreciated? Oh, sure. Christ the Lord, The Road to Cana. Really? I think it's the best novel I was ever able to write. It's about Jesus as a young man in Nazareth on the verge of the ministry, who is really, at that point, just for years, been you know, hit with uncomfortable questions like, why the heck did angels sing at your birth? When are you going to do something? Who the heck are you? That novel is from his point of view, day-to-day life in that town. And finally, John the Baptist appears and begins baptizing, and he's called to go to the Jordan and be baptized, and he's called to begin his ministry. And I loved writing that novel, and I would love to see a great, magnificent movie with a great actor playing that role. What brought you to write the Christ books then? Oh, a deep love of Jesus, number one, and a deep, deep love of the story of the incarnation, the idea that the invisible maker of the universe would come down here, be born amongst us, and live and sweat and work and suffer with us before dying and rising to go back. You know, I I thought, whoa, talk about an outsider. All my work is about outsiders. This is the ultimate outsider. And I want to tell it from his point of view. Someone, I think it's Lestat in Prince Lestat in the Realms of Atlantis, kind of makes fun of that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. He, he doesn't make fun about it, uh, fun of it. 
One of the themes that runs through my work is that suffering is bad, and it's not really required to make you a good person. And the characters talk about this, that the Christian belief system, as they see it for 2,000 years, has been that suffering has a value and that God likes it, and that he wants you to suffer in order to be good. And they really question that, and I question that. And that is a theme that will go on in these books, Mm. you know, that that is not necessarily so. And it's all part of my deep concern that we have to move away from ideas of original sin and suffering and that we are a tainted and fallen species. And we have to embrace our biological reality and our senses and our brains and our bodies. And we have to move forward. We are ascending on this planet. We are not devolving from a lost Eden. We are ascending and we have to embrace matter. And we have to embrace a way to be pleasing to God that involves the embrace of matter and sensuality. What brought you to that particular story? Because it's so different. I mean, thematically, maybe not. Well, I had gone back to religion. I mean, in 1998, I experienced an overwhelming desire to go back to the Catholic Church and give it another chance. I mean, I believed in God, and I wanted to go back to my childhood church and go back to the banquet table and participate. And I thought it would work out. I thought that I didn't have to know the theological answers. God knew them, and that was enough. And for 12 years, I lived and worked and prayed and wrote as a Catholic. And eventually, I left again. And I left again just as I had once left at the age of 18. And this time, I knew why I was leaving. I knew a great deal more about why I was leaving. I was rejecting the belief system because I had come to believe that it was false, and it was based on theology more than it was actually based on the Bible, its own foundational documents. And I did not believe it. I just didn't believe it. But what I've discovered since is the tragic fact that you can go on loving something you don't believe in. You can go on loving Jesus with your whole heart, even if you don't know that he ever existed. Is that why you never wrote the third book? That's exactly why. I was not going to continue with it. Also, by that time, I knew how contentious the Christian community was. I mean, I knew how how fractious, how I knew about the arguments, the fights. It would have been a theological shark fest if I had written the third book. You know, two books about the private life of the Lord is one thing, but to go into his public ministry, I couldn't write it. I didn't have the faith to write it. I didn't have the desire. So I like to think of those two books as reflections on the private life of the Lord, you know, and I think they have great integrity in that way. Well, here we are in 2016, into the winter of 2016, 2017, and we have a very peculiar situation happening in America. Do you think, insofar as consciously you can know what you're going to write, do you think that that will affect future books? You know, it's bound to affect them, but I have no idea how. You know, I I really do trust to this getting at my machine there, my keyboard, and just um, getting into my own world and going where Lestat and Louis and Armand and Marius take me. But There's no question that it will definitely be affected. I mean, what I've witnessed in 2016 is something I never thought possible. Uh, I think that the worst aspect of it is that it's been disappointing and confusing for so many Americans that somebody could be elected that we thought could never be elected. I, I don't know how to put it in any softer way. We need to dig deep down in our hearts and souls and believe in ourselves and believe in our country and believe that we will get through this. 
that maybe somehow this will work out for the better, for the good. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. I lived through the 60s and the 70s in San Francisco, and I certainly know what it's like to live in a community of artists and poets and students who are profoundly alienated from their government and their president. In that case, it was LBJ and then Nixon. And I know how great it can be for the artistic community and how great it can be, finally, for young idealists to go out to protest, to be prompted to write new poetry, new novels, new books, and to go into politics to make a difference. And I'm convinced that will happen this time around, too. You, will, We will have a great renaissance. And, and this time, the demonstrations won't just be on the college campuses. The demonstrations, which I hope are always peaceful, will be everywhere in the streets. And we will move forward culturally in an exciting way. Anne Rice. Prince Lestat and the Realms of Atlantis has just come out, and you have the series that you're working on. You're working on any short stories, anything outside of the vampire stuff at this point? I did collaborate with my son on a project, but we're not at liberty to announce it, but we will. You know, it's with New York, and, and they control what you can announce. So that's going to happen. <laughs> and I, I'm working on a book about my cat from my cat's point of view. And I would like to get that done in the next year. And the next Lestat book? Oh, definitely. The next Lestat book is going to flow right from this one. It's going to flow right from the problems, the survivors of Atlantis, the different things that Lestat and Rashomandis, the villain of this novel, will definitely be a villain in the next novel, too. So that's the reason why Lestat kept him alive. Well, <laughs> Lestat just couldn't bring himself to destroy him, and neither could I. Yes, you're right. I couldn't bring myself to destroy him either. Special thanks to Books, Inc. in Opera Plaza in San Francisco, where this interview was recorded. Anne Rice published one more Lestat novel, Blood Communion, A Tale of Prince Lestat, in 2018, which is her last solo novel to date, though it's possible there are more to come. There are two novels written in collaboration with her son, novelist Christopher Rice, sequels to her 1989 novel, Ramsey's the Damned. The Passion of Cleopatra was released in 2017, and The Reign of Osiris is scheduled for 2022. Television series based on the Mayfair Witches and the Vampire Chronicles are now being developed by AMC. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com, or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.